How are y'all doing? Uh, yeah, as was said, I'm not doing quite so well. I want to apologize right now to the second service. Hi, second service folks, uh, for having to watch me uh, via video, but it's better than nothing, hopefully. And uh, so it's just one of those things. Had a long night. Let's just leave it at that. It was a long night. Uh, over the Christmas season, our uh, family was just passing this bug around. Some of you gotten this bug? It's a nasty little thing. And uh, first my daughter got it, then my grandson got it, then my wife got it, then my son got it. And I've been like, you know, staying under the radar screen thinking like, you know, this is what happens when you're righteous. You just don't get those things. But last night, boom, right after the first service, it just sort of uh, hit me. But uh, what I've learned is that when I am weak, he is strong. Have you learned that principle? And so you just uh, don't try to crank it out. You just rely on his strength. Um, I'm pretty impressed with myself just to be here this morning. Don't you think so? I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm suffering for Jesus. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, I, I'm wearing my Depends, and so everything's safe. And so it, it should be an okay message. All right. We're, uh, I want to end this year um, going back one more time, take one more pass at this temptation, this temptation narrative that we've been looking at from the book of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Luke, chapter 4. I really do think this is my last message on uh, the temptation narratives. This is what we do here at Woodland Hills Church. We're not in a hurry. We just dig into the Word, and we chew on it, and chew on it, and chew on it, and chew on it, because people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. People don't live by health alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. People don't live by finances alone or by anything else that you can identify in this world. We live by the word of God, and so we want to chew on that and digest it. And so we're not in a hurry. We just, nothing fancy, not a high entertainment quota here. We just look at it and go over it again and again. So this is uh, our, probably our 10th or 11th or 12th pass uh, on this marvelous passage. I'm just going to read... I'm going to entitle this message, Life is Not Just a Test. We have that phrase that we get once in a while where it says, this is just a test. Um, well, life is not just a test. It is a test, but it's not just a test. It's very, very important precisely because it is a test. And I'm just going to read the first verse of this chapter. Uh, Luke chapter 4, because we've already read it so much that I think you all have it memorized. Uh, so this is just sort of to kick it off. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Lord, give me strength. Let this word come alive. Open our minds and our hearts and our ears to receive this to have it affect how we look at the world, how we look at ourselves, and how we interact with others, how we live life. I pray, I pray Lord God, protection from any misunderstanding of this. The enemy is always trying to take a true thing and, and, and make it heard uh, in a deceptive way. So, Lord, I, I pray protection around this message. And let it come alive. In this service and in the next service, let it come alive. In Jesus' name, amen. I especially appreciate uh, uh, this service and then also on the 11 o'clock service, the prayer team that we have, uh, have up the notch just a little bit on the intensity factor, okay, uh, to, to keep me covered, to give me strength to, to go through this. I want to look at just this whole concept 
that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You know, we've, we've looked at this really profound passage of Scripture in a lot of different ways, but we haven't really looked at this very basic fact that the whole thing, the whole narrative is premised on the reality that it was the Spirit of God that Jesus was full of that led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, to be tested. So I want to ask three questions here this morning. And uh, I think uh, by the end of it, you'll see how this is a very good way to end this year and get ready to move into this, this new year. Three questions here. Question number one, why did the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tested? And the emphasis there is into the wilderness. Question number two, why did the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tested? And question number three is, so what? What does this have to do with our life? And I hope that by the end of this, you'll see that it has everything to do with our life. Those are the three questions we're going to be examining here in the next 40 minutes or so. So question number one, why did the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tested? What is it about the wilderness uh, that, uh, that was the location where the Spirit had to lead Jesus to be tested? Why not just stay wherever he was? Uh, why, why do you need a special location to be tested? And the answer is probably most of you all already know is, is it was in order to make us all Jewish. I mean, it's kind of obvious. I'm a little embarrassed even preaching on it. But I mean, maybe some of you didn't know that, that if you're a believer in Jesus, you are, at least in a profound sense, Jewish. Did you know that? And, and the way you know you're Jewish is because Jesus went into the desert uh, to be tested. Do I need to say more about that? Should I flesh it out a little bit? You pretty much got that one. Should we move on? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll say a few more words about it. Okay, look at it. You didn't know you were Jewish. It's kind of like all of a sudden finding out that you had that relative way back there. Man, it means something. Scholars agree that the main point of Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tested is that what, what, what the gospel authors are doing there is they're showing a parallel between Jesus and Israel. The wilderness was the place where Israel for 40 years was tested over and over again. And it was identified as the place for trials and testing. And so by having Jesus go out into the wilderness, specifically into the wilderness to be tested, uh, there's a parallel that's being, being drawn between Israel and Jesus. Jesus is being presented, as we saw a, a number of weeks ago, months ago now I guess, that Jesus is presented as the new humanity. So also, Jesus is here being presented as the new Israel. He is himself the embodiment of Israel's mission. And so he's being tested the way Israel was tested in the wilderness. Now what really confirms that perspective? I appreciate the prayer team keep on praying, because I'm feeling stronger even as I speak. Uh, but, but what really confirms this is this. We've seen that with regard to each of the three temptations that the devil throws Jesus' way, Jesus responds with a passage of Scripture. Each of those passages come out of the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, two of them come out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and one of them come out of, comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And th this passage of Scripture in the Old Testament is referred to sometimes by scholars as the, uh, the Deuteronomic uh, testing narrative. This is the, the context in which Israel was being tested. And this is the very same context that Jesus quotes out of. And that means something. It's drawing a parallel between Israel's testing and Jesus' testing. 
The clearest expression of this is, is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, where, where Jesus says that people shall not live by bread alone. If you look at the whole passage in Deuteronomy, here's what it says. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know, in order for God to know what was in your heart, which is to say whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known before. But he did all this to teach you, to teach you that people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here's what's going on back in the Old Testament. God would, as he's leading the children of Israel through the desert, he would give them enough manna, enough bread from heaven to sustain them one day. And he told them that you're only allowed to collect enough for one day. And this passage is telling us that the reason he did that, he could have given them a week's worth or a month's worth, but instead he gives, them, gives it to them on a day-by-day basis because he was testing them. He wanted to see whether or not they would trust him to come through the next day and the next day and the next day. He, wa- he wanted to know whether the Israelites would really trust him to give us this day our daily bread. Or would they rather fall back on their own self-understanding and their own common sense and their own self-preservationist instincts and try to hoard up enough for the next day or maybe a a week's worth? Because, you know, you never really know, do you? And so it makes sense to, you know, to, to, to stock away for the future. So the Lord was testing the Israelites. Jesus quotes this passage as the devil is trying to get him to turn Uh, stone into bread because he is here giving the response that the Israelites were supposed to give. The response is this. Yes, I may be hungry and maybe the future is uncertain, but look at life's more than bread. Life's about trusting every word that comes from the mouth of God. You trust God even when it doesn't make sense to trust God. We've seen that in these temptation narratives, all these temptations are fundamentally about that. Will you do what common sense says you should do? Will, you do? will you do what people expect you to do? Or will you follow the word of God? Will you follow and be obedient uh, to your father? So Jesus passes the test that the Israelites uh, so often failed and, uh, and, and, and reiterates the point that people shall not live by bread alone. And in doing this, Jesus is being presented as the new Israel. He is in his own person. The embodiment of Israel. Uh, The man is the nation. But unlike the nation in the Old Testament, this man who is the nation, this new Israel, he passes the test. Which is why he becomes now the one who can play the role that Israel was intended to to, uh, play. Now, when you become a believer, a genuine believer, when you surrender your life to Christ... You are, the Bible says over and over and over again, put in Christ. That's one of the most common phrases in the New Testament. You are in Christ. You're put in Christ the way water is in this bottle. It's not a metaphor. It's not a a poetic thing. It's an ontological, metaphysical reality. You are are put in Christ. You're you're in a new location. Okay, You're, You're somehow inside of the Son of God. The Son of God we are now seeing is the nation of Israel, which means you are now incorporated into Israel, which is why I say 
that you are, in a profound sense, Jewish. Whatever your biological ethnicity may be, uh, if you are a uh, genuine believer and are placed in Christ, you are, in a profound sense, Jewish. And I'm not just making this up. This is in the Bible. So, for example, uh, in Romans chapter 11, Paul says about the, the church that's composed— uh, well, here he's speaking specifically to Gentiles. He says in Romans 11, he says, You Gentiles are grafted into Israel. You're grafted into Israel. He's using an arborist metaphor there of, of kind of grafting a branch into a trunk. You've been grafted into Israel. You are made, uh, in a profound sense, an Israelite. This is also why uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, uh, he says to, that the church, which is comprised of ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles, and people from every tribe and every nation, this church is, quote, the Israel of God. The Israel of God. The church which is in Jesus, who is the Jewish Messiah, who is the representative of the nation of Israel, the church is now that new Israel, composed both of ethnic Jews and Gentiles. You are, in a real sense, an honorary Jew when you become a believer. About a year and a half ago, I had an African-American man come up to me, put his arm around me, and says... So it says to me, you're an honorary brother. I had never heard the phrase before. I, I go, really? Uh, what does that mean? He goes, well, I see that your daughter uh, married a brother, and that makes you an honorary brother. You're family now. <laughs> and I said, cool. <laughs> All right. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an honorary brother. And I said, uh, okay, well, well, is there any kind of like, you know, cash, what, what is the cash value of that? <laughs> and he says, well, you get to be an honorary brother. <laughs> That's reason enough. I was like, okay, that's cool. Well, see, in the same way, you know, that, that he's saying, you're, you're now kind of part of this heritage. So also, Jesus, when you accept him as Lord and Savior, surrender your life to him, uh, he, he, he greets you and says, now you're an honorary brother uh, in Israel. You are, you are Jewish. So I'm an honorary African-American, and I'm an honorary Jew, and I'm biologically Irish and Scottish, so that makes me an African-Jewish-Irish Scot. Who's Minnesotan? How do you like that? them apples? <laughs> but the more profound point is this. What that means is this. When you're put in Christ, the Jewish Messiah, and now made, you're grafted into Israel, the cash value of that is that now you are a recipient of all the promises that were given to Abraham. You see? Uh, you now cash in on that whole legacy. And you're put in the same position that the ancient uh, uh, Israelites were, were put into. You're a descendant. But the most profound point is this, that when you're in Christ, and therefore an heir of all the promises to Abraham and the nation of Israel, the most profound thing is that now it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Irish or Scottish or African American or Palestinian or any other ethnicity. Because as a recipient of the promises of Abraham, and therefore as an honorary Jew, you uh, have now come to the place where all of those distinctions become utterly irrelevant. Paul brings these two things together in a profound way in Galatians chapter 3, a passage that we read quite a bit around here, when he says, in Christ Jesus, look at the location, like the water's in the bottle, you're in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, you are children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And now comes the honorary Jew part. He just said there's neither Jew nor Gentile. 
But then again, you are an honorary Jew in the sense that you are, you are Abraham's seed, and therefore, and this is the cash value of the whole thing, you are heirs according to the promise. Obviously, when you become a believer, you are either still male or female. You're either Jewish or Irish or Scottish or African or Asian or, 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 or what have you. But what Paul is saying is that in Christ, now that you're the recipient of the promises that were given to Abraham, all of those things are absolutely rendered superfluous. You're a descendant of Abraham and an heir of the promises, and in that sense, an honorary Jew, but in a more profound sense, you're just a child of God. You're just a child of God. In the same way as this man, when he comes up to me and says, you're an honorary brother, I'll take that, and I'm honored to be an honorary brother. But the more fundamental truth about us is that we're both human beings. You see? So also in Christ, you're an honorary Jew. You are an heir to the promises that were given to, to Abraham. But in a more fundamental sense, you're just a child of God. Uh, you're, you're washed by the blood of the Lamb. You're put in Christ Jesus. You're filled with the Spirit. You're seated with, seated with Christ in heavenly places. You're filled with the love and the joy and the peace and the power and the confidence of God Almighty. You're a friend of God. You're a co-worker with God. You're destined to reign in eternity with Him. And if all that is true about you, and it is true about you, then what possible leverage what possible significance could we find in the, in the in the distinctions that the world makes such a big deal out of in christ it doesn't matter whether you're palestinian or jewish the, the, the significance of that distinction is done away with it doesn't matter whether you're irish scottish or asian native american african or hispanic latino whatever uh, you're in Christ, and that means you're one in Christ, and all those distinctions have been abolished. You are the recipient of every promise that God made to the Israelites in the Old Testament. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, in Christ all the promises are amen. That's what he means by that. So if you're in Christ, you're the recipient of all those promises. And believe it or not, all that is wrapped up in the truth, in the meaning of the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness. You see, that's why the wilderness was so important. Jesus is the new Israel, and we are in the new Israel. Okay, so let's go to the second question. Keep on praying for me. I'm feeling stronger every minute. I just might stick around the second service. I don't know. Why did the Spirit lead Jesus? I, I'm going on zero sleep. I, I mean, it, it was a rough night. But uh, you wouldn't know that, would you? I, I, I'm like, praise God. That, honestly, that, that, you, you should have seen me three hours ago. You wouldn't think I'd be up here. Uh, this, is, this is good. God, God's real. <laughs> I'm starting to believe in God, I think. I, I just might start believing this stuff. This is... All right. Why did the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tested? We've talked about why, that why the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. Now, why did he lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tested? Why did the Father want Jesus tested? Why did God test the Israelites in the Old Testament? There are hundreds of places where God tests the Israelites or allows them to be tested by other means. Most of them are in that 40-year period out there in the wilderness, but there are some that are outside of that. What's the purpose of these things? If you look at these passages of Scripture and examine them closely, you'll find the common denominator is this. God, God tests his people first to find out whether or not they'll be trustworthy covenant partners. Because what God's always been interested in here is not some kind of legal salvation. He wants a genuine covenantal relationship. So he tests people to say, are you a faithful covenant partner? And the second purpose is closely related to it, and that is this. 
when it turns out they're not a faithful covenant partner, as revealed by this test, he now refines them to make them a covenant partner, uh, to, to teach them how to walk faithful with him. So it, the, the tests are there to expose, to reveal what is in our heart, and to be the, be the means by which God moves us forward to have a heart that is more Christ-like, that is more trustworthy. Those are the two purposes, to reveal whether or not you're trustworthy, and in case you're not, to make you more trustworthy. So let's go back to the passage that Jesus quotes when he says, people shall not live by, by bread alone. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, as we read before. He did it to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, which is simply an idiomatic expression that means whether or not you would keep his commands. What are you going to choose to do? He humbled you because you more often than not failed that test. And in doing that, he caused you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. And he did all that to teach you that people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You have it right there. What's the purpose of the testing? For God to know whether, what your decision will be. Are you going to walk with him or not? Will you be a faithful covenant partner or not? And then in response to that, to, uh, to humble us, to teach us, to refine us. People often say that God tests us not for our sake, or not, not for God's sake, but for our sake. God isn't trying to find out something, but rather he's letting us find out something. And that would be a spectacular interpretation of these passages if only the passages didn't say the exact opposite. Uh, when you're trying to interpret the Bible, you, you don't want to have an interpretation that says the opposite of what the passages say. Because the passages stress how there's something in this even for God. God wanted to know, are you going to be a faithful covenant partner? You find this all over the place. A couple more examples. Deuteronomy 13. Uh, he says, uh, you must not, Moses says, you must not listen to the words of a false prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you. That's why he allows these false prophets to be around. He's testing you. Why? To find out whether you love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Exodus 16, along the same lines. This is that whole manna thing we were talking about. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for one day. No more. In this way, I will test them. Why? To see whether they'll follow my instructions. Are they going to live by bread alone? Or are they going to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? God doesn't just test, test the nation. He tests individuals. And so if we read this uh, with Abraham, probably the most famous test in the whole Bible. Which is also, by the way, the most bizarre test in the Bible. And I don't have time to explain what was going on there. But this is where the Lord you know, said, Abraham, I want you to offer up to sacrifice your firstborn son. Abraham seems willing to do it. I think all the while trusting that God wouldn't really make him do this. But he clearly was willing to go there. And at the last moment, the Lord says this. Do not lay your hand on the boy, he said. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son. In fact, he's your only son. And so now I know that you're a trustworthy covenantal partner. Over and over again throughout the Bible, you'll find that God tests people to know what they'll decide, to know whether they're, they're covenant partners or not, and to then refine them, to help them become trustworthy covenant partners when they fail. The point I want to make out of these passages is this. 
And I know there's some theological issues around that, and, and you know, you can have whatever theology you want. But you at least have to get this out of these passages. The passages are designed to stress the importance of what we do in a testing moment. What we do in a testing moment, what we choose to do, really matters. These aren't little pro forma activities, like we're just going through a play that's got a, a, a pre-designated conclusion, a foregone conclusion. Things really hang in the balance, even for God, on what you do in a moment of testing. You, as a decision-making being, have the power to go this way or that way, and how you choose to go is going to impact you, it's going to impact others, it's even going to impact God. Uh, things are really in the balance in these testing moments. And what I want us to see is that this isn't a little peripheral aspect of God's program with human beings. It is, in fact, a central thing in God's program with human beings. Uh, it, it, it's central to what God is about. If you are, in fact, a committed covenant partner with God, you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then, uh, listen to me on this one, you have got to be tested and you've got to be refined. It is a non-negotiable of life. With the Israelites, you couldn't, you can't, they can't go into the promised land unless they go through this testing and refinement period. God could, I suppose, wave a magic wand and all of a sudden make them the people that he wants them to be. But see, God doesn't operate that way ordinarily because God honors your personhood. God honors your, your, your decision-making power. God doesn't want to make you into a robot, even a perfect robot. So God uses means to teach us, to change our mind, to refine our character, uh, to solidify our, our uh, convictions about things. And he uses means to do that, and that's what this testing and refinement stuff is all about. So it's not enough for God to get the children of Israel out of Egypt. He wants them to also grow out of their victim mindset. And that takes testing and refinement, refining and testing. He wants them to get out of the slave mindset that they've got so that they'll enter into the promised land and, and they'll know how to walk with God and trust God. And to do that, you need refining and testing, testing and refining. He wants them to get out of their, this, uh, this, this insecurity where they always are hoarding bread because they don't know, what, you know where the next meal is coming from. And to do that, he tests them and refines them, refines them and tests them. He wants to get them out of Egypt. He wants to get them into the promised land. But the way to do that is to get them through the desert. The way to the promised land is through the, the, the desert. And that's what that whole 40 years is about. If you're a covenant partner, a part of the bride of Christ, you've got to be refined and tested. Even Jesus had to be refined and tested. He's fully God, but he's also fully human. And as a full human being, he's got to grow. He's got to mature. He's got to be refined. And yes, in this passage, he's got to be tested. He's got to show that he is, in fact, a trustworthy covenant partner who will now play the role that Israel was to play in the Old Testament. Look at this in Hebrews chapter 5. It says, Son, though he was... He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Once made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Now, uh, you know, on one level, he was perfect from the start. He was sinless from the start. He was the son of God from the start, right? But as a full human being, Jesus, like the rest of us, has to grow. He has to mature. 
He's got to learn obedience, and he learns it by the things which he suffers. He's got to go through some refinement. If he's going to play the role that God wants him to play, if he's going to play the role of, uh, of being the source of salvation to all who obey him, he's got to go through this refinement, and he's got to go through this testing, and that's what this testing narrative is all about. He goes into the position that Israel was in in the Old Testament. And if that is true of Jesus, how much more true is it of all of us? If you are a follower of Jesus, you've got to be tested, you've got to be tried, you've got to be refined. Uh, there's no way into the promised land apart from that. God is not going to wave a magic wand and make you instantaneously perfect. You grow into that. And God is supremely interested in your character development and, and you growing in your character and your perceptions. Uh, the minute you mention character, you're setting yourselves at odds with a great deal of American religion, aren't you? Uh, American religion is, uh, to a large degree, a save me, bless me religion. We like to get saved, and then we like to get blessed. That's what we like. Get, get me out of hell, and then make my life a little nicer. And then I'll die and go to heaven. And that's a good arrangement, and I'll buy that. Uh, that's what we kind of like. Trouble is, is that's not God's program. The typical American uh, mindset is something like this. You save me, then you bless me. Or to use the Old Testament paradigm, you, you get me out of Egypt, and then you get me into the promised land. Can we, let's just forget all this wilderness stuff. Crying out loud. You know, you're going to make me perfect anyways sooner or later, so let's just skip, the, you know, skip that and go right into the promised land. We like the bless me stuff. We like the fire insurance stuff. We don't like this refining fire stuff. And so in a lot of American Christianity, discipleship and growing and learning obedience by suffering and sacrifice in a lot of theology, that's sort of an option. It's, it's, it's an optional thing. It'd be nice, you should, really. If you're really grateful, you should. But it's sort of seen as ornamental. It's not seen as non-negotiable. And I'm here to tell you, at the end of year 2006, preaching this last message of this year, this is not uh, negotiable. This is non-negotiable. This is, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. God's program looks like this, and it contrasts with the American program in some strong ways. You save me, for sure, save me. And definitely he wants to bless me and get me in the promised land. But there's that wilderness in between, and the wilderness consists of refining and testing. Refining and testing. Like the proverbial, what are they, what are they steel guy making the steel in the fire, refiner's fire, metallic guy, whatever, I forget the name. Hey, cut me a break. I'm sick here, okay? But the guy who does, the, the steelsmith, the smith, wordsmith, steelsmith, the guy who does that. Blacksmith! <laughs> there you go. The guy who makes the horseshoes. Okay, so he's got the, he's got the, the stuff in the fire, and, 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 he, you know, and he's got to pound it, and he tests it. Is it ready yet? No, and then he puts it back in the fire. Pulls it out again, pounds it, and tests it. That's got to happen to us, as God wants to refine us. God doesn't want to just get us out of Egypt uh, he wants us to get out of the slave mentality that we had acquired in Egypt. Uh, God wants to get us into the promised land, but to do that, he's got to make us ready for the promised land. The Bible says that nothing unclean will enter into the kingdom of God. That means that every unclean part of us, every carnal part of us, every stupid part of us, every non-Christ-like part of us has got to be refined away. It's got to be stripped away. It's got to be burned off of us. And that's what God's doing with this refining, testing, testing, refining kind of thing. God wants to get you out of prison, and he does that the minute you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But he also wants you to get rid of your criminal mindset. 
He doesn't want to be married to a bride who's just legally out of prison. No, he wants to have a bride who really has gotten out of that, 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 that criminal mindset. And so he's, he's about changing that mindset throughout all of our life. Yes, he wants you to get out of hell, for sure. But he also wants you to become a real saint. Doesn't want, God isn't interested in you as a legal fiction, a legal unit that he just legally gets out of hell. He's interested in you as a person. He wants you to be all that he knows you can be. He wants to grow you to be a person who genuinely, not just uh, kind of in a legal way, but, but in your own experience, you really reflect the character of God, the love of God, the holiness of God. And so you're part of this refining process. He doesn't want to just get you out of the mud, our addiction to being swine that wallow in the mud of our yuckiness. No, he wants to, he, he, he wants to clean you up and make you a radiant bride. And that's what the refining stuff is all about. He cares about your character. And all of our life is this process of God getting us out of Egypt and now refining us in the uh, wilderness experience. And the more you're refined, the more you pass the test, the more open you are, to, you're able to handle more blessing. And you're able to now step into a greater service for the kingdom. And, and so he, he gets us to the point where we're ready for one level, and then he gets us to the point where we're ready for another level, and it's a constant growing process, which now leads to the third question, and that is, how should this all affect our life? And I think if, we're, if we look at this accurately, it affects our life profoundly. I want to encourage you as we move into the year 2007 to, in, on, in, on one level, in one sense, See your whole life as one big test. It's, a, it's obviously a test, at least in the sense that, uh, you know, God is, is finding out, are you going to put your trust in him or not? Are you going to be saved or not? You're gonna, you know, this is sort of the gestation period of humanity and, and what's being determined here, and things are really at stake here. This isn't a pro forma thing. God is, 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 is seeing whether or not you're going to be born in the next life in the kingdom of God or outside the kingdom of God. And so the, the first test is this. Will you believe in Jesus? Put, give your life to Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you haven't done that, I want to encourage you to stop by at our, at our, at our visitor's table. It's the big table. The back is up against the wall of the auditorium here. And there's a person there who would just love to explain to you what, what, what's involved in that. Don't go into the year 2007 in the condition that you're in right now. Become a disciple of Jesus. But even after you become a disciple of Jesus, that's not like the eureka end all of things. You just got the first footstep out of Egypt, your first step out of Egypt. And now comes the walk. Now comes the refining process. You've just begun a journey. Now I want to make two things really clear here. Number one, to see all of life as a test does not mean that you see everything that happens to you as a God-orchestrated test. All right? Um, in this world that we're in right now, it is a war zone. And what comes to pass is the result of myriad of decisions on the part of angels and human beings going back to the beginning of time, and no one can figure that all out. Uh, and sometimes stuff just happens. Sometimes the excrement just hits the fan. Uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm talking to you out of a person who's come out of a rough night, all right? Uh, sometimes life is just like that. What's crucial is that we don't think that God's behind every piece of manure that comes our way. Sometimes it just happens. Uh, God's not up there, you know, involved in every little detail to ensure that whatever. I met a lady a couple years ago who thought that the death of her child was a test from God. She said that. She said to her friends, oh, God's testing me. 
And the whole thing backfired because she just got enraged to think that God would kill my daughter to make a point to me. That's not really good pedagogical technique if you think about it. Uh, what about teaching the child something? Um, no, you know what? In, in this world, it's a war zone, and there's demonic stuff, and, and people do demonic stuff, and, and, and stuff just happens. And so don't think that everything that happens is a God-orchestrated test. God does orchestrate tests, but it doesn't mean that everything is a God-orchestrated test. But to see all of our life as a test means this, that God can use everything that happens. That in everything that happens, God is looking to see how you'll respond, even to the tragedies of your life. And depending on how you respond, God will now move forward to teach you something that you need to learn. He'll use everything in life. Life, every aspect of life, every event in life, every person in life is an opportunity for God to further test, to further refine, further refine, and, and further test. But don't see it all as a God-orchestrated test. The second thing is this. Don't get a... Last night I had a, a person that had to work through this. The minute I say test... He got a picture of his fourth grade teacher handing out tests. And it's like, like you know, is Johnny going to pass the test? And trouble is Johnny often fails these tests, and there's all sorts of shame associated with that. When I talk about tests, life is a test, God is not up there like some kind of a dysfunctional fourth grade teacher saying, well, Mr. Boyd, are you going to fail again like you usually do? Uh, you know, I, it, like it's just a pass-fail sort of thing. No, to see it as a test means... God's motive in all this is, is his profound love. And it just means at, at every moment he's looking at you to see what else needs to happen to refine you. The devil tempts us to fail. God tests us to succeed. That's the difference between the two. Okay? The devil's always trying to get you to, you know, fall on your face. God never does that. God wants you to, to pass this thing. And when you don't, that just becomes more part of your learning experience. More often than not, we don't pass the test. We, we don't even know the test is going on. We, we fail. But God just now uses that out of his tremendous love for you to further refine you and to further grow you. But see it all as a test. Think about this. In the, in the Old Testament, every day that they were in the wilderness, they had a test. The, the bread came down new every day. It wasn't like this was an occasional thing. Every day they had a decision to make. Am I going to trust God to provide tomorrow's bread and therefore only collect enough for today? Or am I going to try to hoard it? They had a decision to make. It wasn't an occasional thing. This whole life experience we're in right now, every day and every moment of every day, there are decisions to make. And every one of those decisions, is a, in every one of those decisions, we reveal our, something about our character. We make decisions that form our character. And then we, uh, you know, set up an opportunity for God to bring a new teaching into our life to refine us further. Think about this. In Matthew 25, this passage just blew me away recently as I began to think about it in this context. In Matthew 25, it's a judgment day, and, and Jesus says to this group of people, when I was naked, you didn't, you didn't clothe me. When I, was, when I was hungry, you had food to give, and you didn't give me any food. And... and uh, when I was homeless, you had extra space, but you didn't invite me in. When I was in prison, uh, you had other important things to do. You never visited me in prison. Uh, and there's a judgment associated with that. Now, here's what, here's what I've all of a sudden realized. Those folks were being tested, but they didn't know it. Those folks were being tested. The existence of the homeless, the naked, the poor, the imprisoned is a test. What are you and I going to do about that? 
they're there. And now no doubt the people who are, who are you know, facing Jesus, they could have said, wait a minute, I hardly ever came across a homeless person or a person in prison. And Jesus could respond by saying, well, that's the point. You, you lived your nice little isolated life. You didn't have to confront this. You know, but you could have and should have. There was a responsibility that was there. And what I know from this passage then is this, that to say life is a test means this. How I respond to this person, that person, this person over there, that, that, that is a, a test in the sense that God's looking to see, Greg Boyd, what will, you, will you be faithful? In every event, in every encounter, there's a question wrapped up in it. And the question is, will you be faithful this moment? And now will you be faithful this moment? Will you be a person who walks in obedience to Jesus Christ in relationship to this person, in relationship to this event? It's all a test. And seeing it as a test raises your awareness and affects how you interact with others. Uh, a little while ago, I was at a coffee shop by my house, and I was picking up a, one of my quadruple espressos that I sometimes uh, you know, like to chug down. So I'm getting my, my, my quadruple espresso, and uh, there's a guy there who I see on occasion, and I think he's a street person. I don't know, you know if he has got living quarters or not, but, but he's, he's very you know, haggard, and, and, and he doesn't smell all that well, and his breath is honestly very foul, and, and uh, I, he's very simple, maybe even mentally challenged. Uh, uh, and God bless him, but he's there, and he starts talking to me, and, and it's kind of obnoxious, like just going on and on and on. And I've got stuff to do and, and, and other things to, you know, get on with. So I'm getting my coffee, and it's like, you know, yeah, 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 okay, good, good. And I'm waiting to get my, get out of there. And then the Lord's sort of like, this, does he ever do that to you? And it's like, Boyd, <laughs> Boyd, uh, this is a test. Uh, can you see me in that guy? Because that's what he's saying in Matthew 25. Is this how you'd treat me if, if that was me? Because as a matter of fact, it is. Uh, let, let's lower the bar a whole lot. Uh, would you treat Bill Gates that way if he was, you know, uh, in, in, next in line to you? Uh, I don't think so. Um, and, and, uh, and so why would you treat this man that I made uh, to be a king on the earth, why would you treat him that way? Uh, reflect, and I'm not saying that every person that goes down the street that we're called to have this in-depth conversation with them. You can't live like that, like that. But can we be open to the Spirit checking us and saying, here's a person, I want you to ascribe unsurpassable worth to this person by how much time you spend with them, by, by making eye contact with them, by going ahead and, and holding your breath if necessary as he's talking, because I know it's kind of rough, but, but that's how you ascribe unsurpassable worth to him. And see, there's a test that was going on right there. That's what I'm talking about. At every moment, uh, there's, not, uh, there's decisions that we make. Which way are we going to go? And I don't want us to come out of this with this sense of, of like this austerity, like, oh my gosh, like we're in fourth grade and every single thing is, there's a, there's a hatchet going to fall on us. I'm not saying that. Hear that. What I am saying is that we need to walk with an awareness that God's growing us. And every moment, every person, every encounter, every event is an opportunity for us to manifest where we're at and for God then to grow us a little bit further. In 2006, we've had probably millions of tests, each one of us. And I, I, we've passed probably a good, good many of them, and I bet we've failed a good many of them. But the tragedy is I'm guessing that for the most part, we didn't even know we were being tested. 
That's the awareness I would like us to have as we go into the year 2007, to walk with this kind of awareness. What are you going to do with what you've got? It's a test. My, my blessing is a test. What am I going to do with what I got? How much am I going to cash in on my own good luck for my own benefit? Am I really listening to God in terms of what I do with my resources, what I do with my time, what I do with my limited talent? Am I listening to God or am I just doing my own little thing? See, this is a test. This is a test. And uh, God's growing us in this wilderness. Close your eyes for a moment here as I, I end with this question. Holy Spirit, would you right now help us in our minds imagine the answer to this question? The question is, how is God testing you today? And let the Holy Spirit kind of just give you a face, perhaps, a situation, perhaps. In your mind, imagine the answer to that question. How is God testing you today? How am I going to handle this flu right now? How am I going to handle my finances? How am I going to interact with my kid? How am I going to interact with the foul-smelling guy at the coffee store? How am I going to handle myself tonight? Holy Spirit, give us this picture. Just one. There's probably many, but just one. And now, in your heart, before God, would you just do this? If this is really in your heart to do, in fact, this moment right now could be a test. Would you just, before God, it, it, if it's your heart to do the covenant thing, the faithful thing, in response to the thing he's revealing to you right now, just raise your hand before God. Just make that note before God. Say, Lord, would you help me pass this test? Amen. To grow through this test. Amen. As I close in prayer, I want you to know that the front of the auditorium is open. If you would like to come forward and, and pray with uh, one of our prayer teams, I encourage you to do that. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, th this is the first test that you have to pass. Say yes. And so stop at our visitor's table and uh, talk to the person that is there. Uh, just stand as I close with this prayer. Father, we thank you for 2006. I pray, Lord, that each one of us, as we're here at the end of 2006, can look back and say that we have grown in some ways, at least, in this year, because it's all about growing. We thank you, Lord God, for sustaining us, encouraging us, strengthening us, getting us through hard times. Lord God, throughout the year 2006, Lord, I thank you right now for giving me the, the power, uh, the strength to, to, to deliver this message. I really didn't know if I was going to have it. And you've just come through marvelously, and I praise you for that, Lord. Uh, Lord, as we go into 2007, would you open our eyes to walk with this awareness? God, that, that uh, there, there are things at stake in what we choose to do with what we've got. Lord, open our eyes to see that. I pray, Lord God, against the enemy who would try to get some to freak out about this, and I've done that. You know, you just, uh, Lord, I, I pray protection. I, we need balance on this. But we certainly need to have an awareness, Lord God. Help us to notice 
the hungry, the homeless, the imprisoned around us. Help us to notice those who are friendless. Even out in the gathering area, help us to notice those who maybe, Lord, uh, don't have uh, people to talk to or people to interact with, Lord. Help us to notice those who are down and out. Help us, Lord God, just to hear your voice on a moment-by-moment basis and to respond as a faithful covenant partner, Lord. Keep on growing us. Keep on refining us, preparing us for your eternal kingdom. It may just happen in 2007. We don't know. But prepare us throughout 2007, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build a kingdom. I'll see you next year.